Hello, and welcome to the Movement is Life Health Disparities podcast. My name is Mary O'Connor. I'm honored to chair Movement is Life, and I am so excited today to have Dr. Wayne Riley with us. Dr. Riley is the president of SUNY, that's the State University of New York, Downstate Health Sciences University. Dr. Riley is an internationally renowned physician leader, and he's here to talk to us about many of the challenges uh, that we're facing, particularly related to safety net hospitals. Dr. Riley, welcome. Good to be here, Dr. O'Connor. What a wonderful uh, uh, opportunity and pleasure it is to be with you. I have to share with the audience, too, that um, Dr. Riley and I actually went to college together. We overlapped. Mm -hmm. And so it was, uh, it's always kind of refreshing to encounter someone that you went to school with way back when. That's right. Dr. Riley, tell us a little bit about your journey from undergraduate mm-hmm. to where you are now and in terms of, of how you develop this passion for health equity in the work you're doing today. Well, uh, thank you again, Mary. Um, you know, I'm wonderful beneficiary of having had a, a physician father, uh, which is a very special um, sort of uh, situation to be born into. I was born uh, during my father's sophomore year of medical school, and uh, he, he was my first hero. And the reason why he, he had such an impact on me is that he was, he was uh, tremendously, even though he was a surgeon, surgeons tend to be a little more analytical, a little more um, you know, uh, you know, by the book, but he was a wonderful humanitarian as a surgeon as well. But more to the point of how I got interested in, in this work, this important work that this conference and you are highlighting, is the fact that he was an inner city doctor. Um, he took care of people who didn't have insurance. Uh, he, he had a lot of his patients were on Medicaid. Um, his practice struggled because he was a pretty much 80% Medicaid practice. Um, but he loved every minute of what he what he did to serve the community in New Orleans, where uh, where he grew up. He felt a strong tug to return back to New Orleans after his training. After we moved around the country during his residency years, he felt a strong tug to return to his roots, which he did. And you know, I didn't realize it till many years later that you know that that was a, a, a difficult decision for him. But he understood how impactful he could be in working in New Orleans in, in trying to help improve the health care of uh, inner-city communities. Well, that is wonderful, and uh, I'm sure that he and your mother uh, were both very proud of you. And um, although I suspect that maybe he teased you a little bit that you didn't become <laughs> a surgeon and that you went into internal medicine. Well, he teased me two, two, on two reasons. You'll get the first one. He, he, he often used to say, oh, my gosh, well, let me tee it up this way. My father was a graduate of the University of Michigan uh, for his undergraduate degree. So he'd always tease me and tease in front of his friends, oh, my son's a failure. He went to Yale. So Mary and I, Dr. O'Connor, share our <laughs> Yale experience, but he'd always tease me, oh, you're a failure, son. You went to Yale, uh, you know, just in a very loving way. Um, um, you know, so, and then, you know, again, the, the foundation that he and my mother provided, I'm the oldest of five, you know, set the tone for why I've undertaken this tremendous opportunity to be of service. Uh, and that's the way I look mm-hmm. at my daily life, built upon my background, my passion for this topic 
uh, that this conference uh, and, and all of you and the organizers and all the great speakers are really passionate about. So um, this, is, this is in my wheelhouse. Well, I suspect it was a little easier on your dad because Yale never played Michigan in football. So Thank he God. Yeah, he didn't have to pick <laughs> any God. sides on the athletic yeah. uh, front. Yeah. Um, all right, let's, let's talk about your leadership and the challenges um, that the health system that you have led uh, faced in the early parts of the pandemic because you all were really at the epicenter of when things got bad first. Absolutely. I remember it so well, um, Mary. I was in a conference in Atlanta, Georgia, and it was just after MLK Day, uh, January 2020. And like many of us, I get these little email, you know, email alerts from CNN, and you know, and I kept getting this, this, these alerts from New York Times, Washington Post, CNN about the first case, uh, you know, identified in Washington State. And I said, oh no, that's not good, because I had been following the Chinese experience with COVID that was going on before the holidays in, in late 2019. And again, the Chinese experience was that the, this virus, which was unnamed at that point, was really focused like a laser beam on patients who had a lot of chronic conditions, diabetes, hypertension, uh, you know, COPD, et cetera. So it hit me like a ton of bricks. Oh my gosh, if this is on our shores, then the community where we work, where I have the wonderful opportunity to lead an institution that serves underserved, predominantly black, black Afro-Caribbean patient population in central Brooklyn with lots of comorbidities, I said, this is going to be bad for us. And so I you know, left the conference, hustled back to New York. Within a week, I think we had our first case. Um, that late January, and it just mushroomed, mushroomed uh, from that point on. I just, I just remember that day sitting in that conference and saying, oh, no, this is not going to be good, and unfortunately my uh, intuition was correct. New York was heavily hit in, in February, March, April, May of 2020. Um, the then-governor of New York designated our teaching hospital, University Hospital of Brooklyn, as a COVID-only hospital we had to decant the hospital overnight, Mary. Uh, and for those for the oh listeners, decanting is a fancy word to say we had to discharge patients to other hospitals or get them home. We had to empty out the OB ward with uh, with women who were about to deliver because we had to, per the governor's order, we had to just basically turn on a dime and, and get ready for COVID patients. So at one point, we had over 400 COVID patients in-house. Um, at one time, which, uh, again, none of us, you, you and I, never had uh, any inkling that in our medical careers we would deal with a worldwide pandemic. Yeah, we heard about it in, in our classes, of course, and but, you know, we heard about, you know, Ebola and some SARS and all that, but I don't think any of us really realized that we would experience what we did, you know, in the early days of the pandemic. Tell us about how you supported your staff, because... We understand that as healthcare providers, and, and this, of course, was pre-vaccine, mm -hmm. when people certainly felt a lot more stress about getting sick themselves 
And even if it wasn't so much that I was going to get sick, I worried that I was going to bring the virus home to my family or my 99-year-old mother-in-law who lived with us that would, it would surely have killed her. Right. So, so there was just the angst that your staff must have felt and the courage for them yeah. to come in every day and do their jobs. People don't always remember those moments now that we're in this time of vaccine mandates. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, the memory of this is, is ephemeral, if you will. But in the early days, uh, people were scared. Um, they, they knew that there was not a vaccine. There was just discussions about a vaccine, that it would be a year later in the spring of 2020 before we would see a vaccine. There was no well-established treatment. Um, you know, uh, the, the therapeutics for these types of, of, of uh, viral illnesses were, were very primitive in a sense. Uh, the techniques of mechanical ventilation, meaning how do we take care of patients with respiratory distress, were very different for COVID patients versus other respiratory diseases. Um, they were scared. They were scared because we were low on PPE. I remember I spent hours each day, Mary, calling around to vendors, hey, I need N95 masks, I need surgical gowns, I need gloves, um, you know, and, and they were scared. They said, oh, my gosh, you know, we only have, you know, 10 days' worth of gloves in the whole hospital. On a normal time, we'd have 50 days of, of gloves. Right. Uh, so I was really concerned about the safety of the physical safety of, of our staff. Secondly, I was worried about the emotional toll because a lot of them then began to have family members who got sick. Um, and I remember so vividly uh, walking through the, the hospital and visiting with our respiratory therapists, and they were just all in a corner bawling. And I said, well, I'm sorry, what, what happened? She said, well, one of the spouses of one of the respiratory therapists had just succumbed in the hospital that very morning uh, to, uh, to COVID. Um, and, you know, I, I tried to, you know, be as comforting as I can, but it, it, was, it was a gut punch that this was very serious. So I worried about our staff. I worried about their physical well-being. We did, you know, we, like I said, we, we got on the PPE thing. We got some, um, uh, we, we turned our, part of our student residence hall into quarters so that our staff would not go home after working because of the situation you just mentioned with a 99-year-old you know, mother at home. Many of our nurses have intergenerational families, exactly. and they were worried about bringing it back home. So we said, "No, we've you know we've got a hundred you know rooms over at the student dorm. Go there." Um, so we we try to anticipate as much need as we can. The other thing, just in terms of taking care of patients, we were starting to run out of oxygen because think about it: no hospital has two hundred people on oxygen. At, on a, any, even on a bad day, you maybe have 40 people on oxygen. Um, but this is where you had 200 people on oxygen, and oxygen supplies were in short supply. Uh, I had other hospitals in Brooklyn calling me, uh, Wayne, do you have any oxygen to spare? Um, so, I, you know, it was, it was it, I, like I said, I, I, I think people underestimate the severity of this whole pandemic um, in that early phase. I could not agree more, and I think that people, um, well, I, I hope that one of the lessons that we learn is how critical the supply chain is. 
and we're hearing comments about supply chain now <laughs> because people can't, you know, maybe get every gift that they want to buy for the holidays, but I'm talking about serious supply chain issues for hospitals and uh, necessary medical equipment and supplies to keep people alive. Correct. It's, 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 it came down to simple things. Remember the swabs for testing? Oh, yeah. Those were in short supply, Mary, at a point. Now we take it for granted you can walk into any CVS or, um, and get a COVID test. But in the early days, we didn't have enough swabs to perform uh, you know, COVID-19 uh, testing. So you're right, people, you know, supply chain was not something we thought about as, as top of mind in, in many healthcare facilities because we had been all trained to do what's called just-in-time inventory. You don't keep 100 days worth of gloves in your hospital. You keep about 40, and then when you need more, you order more because you knew that they was always there. But during COVID, you couldn't do that because it wasn't there beyond the 40. So now we have a better appreciation of how to think about supply chain, uh, how to be prepared better. So that is a, a good learning, amongst other good learnings, too. But that is one that I think is going to be with us forever. I hope so, because that was a very painful lesson for all involved. Let's take this concept of how critical hospitals have been in the pandemic and and view it a little bit broader in terms of what I call safety net hospitals and their role in um, serving vulnerable populations. And of course, you lead a hospital that serves vulnerable populations. And we know that there have been a record number of hospital closures. Last year had the highest number of hospital closures across the nation. We've seen a lot of closures in rural America, which um, I hope our listeners, uh, we, we talk a lot about disparities not just in urban America, but also in rural America. And so I hope our listeners to the podcast are, are have a greater mm-hmm. awareness of this. But this is certainly an issue across the country. So um, I'm very interested in your thoughts about the role of safety net hospitals in serving vulnerable communities. And and then we'll talk about more about some disparities. Yeah, absolutely. You know, safety net hospitals, uh, first of all, not all hospitals are the same in terms of the, the, sometimes the offerings, but more specifically the patients who visit that hospital. Safety net hospitals tend to be hospitals that take care of, uh, of a high percentage of patients who are on Medicaid. Um, they tend to take care of patients and, uh, who are... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. For our listeners yeah, who Medicaid. may not know sure. what Medicaid is. Right. There's, it, I, when I used to teach this, Mary, to our students, I call it the M&Ms, <laughs> Medicare and Medicaid. So Medicare is for those 65 and above or disabled or on dialysis um, that most Americans, once they reach 65, if they've worked a certain number of quarters in their life, become Medicare eligible almost automatically. Medicaid is for those who are deemed... Um, uh, you know, economically disadvantaged based upon a percentage of the federal poverty level. It's a state-federal partnership where the, the federal government provides two-thirds of the resources uh, for Medicaid, and then each state and territory provides one-third. So it's it's sort of more state-specific, but it's focused on those who ha- have uh, high um, medical uh, needs, um, in, uh, uh, inability to get private insurance many times. They're not Medicare eligible yet because they're not 65 or disabled or on dialysis. So they, Medicaid is a critically important safety net program 
for those who can't afford private insurance or aren't old enough to uh, gain access to Medicare. Your hospital served a higher percentage of Medicaid patients correct. than other hospitals in the greater New York region. That's correct. Our, for example, it, we call it the, the case mix. It's so about 65% of our patients are Medicaid, about another 15% are Medicare, meaning 65 and above, and the rest are regular insurance or commercial, as they say. So as you can see, most of our patients are Medicaid populations. Medicaid populations tend to have a lot of comorbidities, Mary. They have high rates of diabetes, high rates of cancer, high rates of, of pulmonary problems, high rates of heart disease. Um, and, and again, these were the diseases that the virus were laser beam focused on. So a lot of safety net hospitals really became um, very important community assets because they were the trusted partners in their community. Uh, for example, in, in our community in central Brooklyn, uh, again, heavily Afro-Caribbean, African-American population, um, you know, going into Manhattan across the water um, is not something they're comfortable because they prefer to get their care in the, in, in the community, uh, in their neighborhood, et cetera. But the problem is safety net hospitals, and as you've mentioned, rural hospitals sometimes don't have all the resources that the bigger, shinier hospitals have. And so, Meaning all the specialists, the specialists or some very fancy, expensive equipment Correct. for a diagnostic test, something like Correct. that. Correct. Something as simple as private rooms. We don't have private hospital rooms at our safety net hospital. It's still two bunks to a room. Uh, whereas the private hospital, hot, better resource hospitals, have all private rooms by and large. So you can see there is a little disparity there. And I, I like to mention, you know, to, to, to folks when I talk about the pandemic, look, the pandemic has not just revealed that we have issues of health disparities, but we have health disparity in terms of hospital uh, resources that the pandemic has really revealed as well. You have a hospital like mine, hospital like the one I trained in in Houston, Texas, Ben Taub General Hospital, famous public safety net hospital. Those hospitals became critical because they were uh, community-trusted partners. Equally so in the rural areas. Remember, disparities are not just black, white, or Latino, or Asian. They're urban-rural. They're suburban, exurban. Um, and we worry about the, the rural hospital closures, too. Um, the... the I guess the synonymous safety net hospital in a rural hospital in a rural area is called a critical access hospital. And we've seen a lot of access, uh, problems with critical access hospitals. Critical access hospitals, as you know, are about 25 beds, um, very small hospitals, but very important in rural areas. So these two, you know, type of hospitals became really important. And, and I would argue this pandemic has highlighted that we need to invest more in rural critical access hospitals, rural hospitals, and urban safety net hospitals. I could not agree more, but I'm going to ask a question that I think some of our listeners would ask because to someone who doesn't have a lot of knowledge about the finances of medicine, mm -hmm. it doesn't make any sense that hospitals are closing. We have, we're in a pandemic. Right. Unfortunately, we're still hopefully coming out of a pandemic. Mm -hmm. But if we had a record number of hospital closures in the past year 
and we've had a record number of people dying from COVID and hospitals being overwhelmed. It is not that the hospitals are lacking patients mm -hmm. or they're lacking business. So if the hospitals are full, they're patients that ha need care, then why are hospitals closing? Yeah, that is uh, very complicated, but let me sort of explicate it this way. For example, I mentioned that hospitals that do a lot of Medicaid, the, the payment rate for Medicaid doesn't match the private insurance rates. In other words, Aetna, Blue Cross, uh, United, they tend to pay hospitals a higher rate. For example, if a certain procedure, we'll just use round numbers, if a procedure um, in a uh, more commercial hospital is uh, about $1,000 for that procedure, in a safety net hospital, it only may be reimbursed at the $600 level. So remember, that's a $400 delta or gap. But remember, safety net hospitals have to have the same level of nurses. The nursing wages, by and large, are not that discrepant between that better resource hospital and that safety net hospital. You have to have doctors like you and I who've been through training and board certified in both hospitals. You have to pay doctors a living wage. You have to pay nurses, respiratory therapists. So the, the labor cost is one of the big drivers of, of hospital closures um, because, the, the, again, the lack of, of resources compared to the better resource hospitals makes that, that margin gap sometimes insurmountable where unfortunately communities have to make a tough decision to close a hospital, which is very painful, um, very disruptive to many people's lives, um, and very disheartening. So you're right, that is a, 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 a trend that the pandemic has exacerbated, this gap between the finances of better resource hospitals and those of safety net hospitals. You know, it reminds me of one of my famous quotes, and as you know, I trained at Mayo, mm -hmm. Mayo Clinic, in Great Rochester, place. Minnesota, and and actually, uh, my first day of my residency program, I, I met Sister Jenna Rose, who was the last uh, nun, the mm -hmm. last sister who was a, an administrator of St. Mary's Hospital, mm -hmm. which was the, the largest hospital there. Um, and she is quoted, uh, as famously quoted, as saying, no margin, no mission. No mission. Meaning... You have to make money in healthcare mm -hmm. in order to keep your doors open to serve people. But the second half of her quote that's not always included is no mission, no need for margin, which I, that's right. I you know, I always include no margin, no mission. But people but forget no that. Mission, yeah. No mission, no need for margin. That's right. And again, that's, the, I think, the good sister, uh, you know, elucidated it very well that, uh, right, everybody knows about the no margin, no mission, but if there's no mission, there's no need for the margin. Safety net hospitals have a mission, Mary. They have a mission, a historic mission, to take care of immigrants. Um, you know, uh, during uh, early parts of our lives, uh, taking care of African Americans because they could not go to uh, certain hospitals in the Deep South because of segregation. Um, uh, you know, others uh, in communities uh, who are struggling, that's, the, that's in the, you know, the DNA of these hospitals is that they're incredibly, incredibly mission-focused. And they want to carry out that mission, um, but they know that the margin pressure is significant. So how, how have you managed that? I mean, you are an example of success 
in such a challenging situation, right? Like, I would think people would want to clone you and, you know, just take you to other safety net hospitals and say, okay, here's, here's Dr. Riley 2 or Dr. Riley 3. Well, thank you. So kind. But, no, there's many others around the country in addition to... Uh, uh, to uh, me and my my wonderful team back at Downstate who care deeply about that mission focus. Um, you know, um, th this is not a solitary pursuit. Uh, I, I know the good sister would remind us all that it, it does take a lot of people to buy into the vision who just don't want to look at health care as a way to make money or to build shiny buildings. That, that at the end of the day, the reason why we have our, our our jobs, our our responsibilities as physicians, as administrators in healthcare, is to take care of people. And this is what I tell the medical students from day one. I tell our nursing students from day one that you and I are in the people business. Absolutely. And safety net hospitals are in the people business for those who are most vulnerable amongst us. So. So we appreciate that the healthcare system is really a system that takes care of sickness and that focusing further upstream on how we can promote better health in our communities, a, more of a wellness approach mm -hmm. so people don't get so sick, they don't need to be in the hospital, That's right. right, is certainly something that I feel strongly is a direction that we should move. How do you see that um, fitting into your vision of Sunny Down State? Mm -hmm. and, and how can you afford to do that when so many of these efforts of outreach into communities for community-based programs are not reimbursed by anyone? You right. don't get paid to do it, and you're already in a financially challenging situation. Well, a great example, and I'll highlight it in my, my presentation, uh, is we have a, a, a wonderful group of students, faculty, and staff who have um, become very passionate about plant-based diets. And, you know, that is, is a different way of thinking uh, for many of our communities. Mm -hmm. But I think it's a, a manifestation of how safety net hospitals and academic health science centers can go, go beyond the sickness stuff that we do well and to try to get to a, a focus on wellness. And by improving the diet and the nutritional status of many communities uh, with a more plant-based diet can really pay dividends down the line for all sorts of diseases, heart disease, musculoskeletal diseases, uh, you know, uh, weight management, et cetera. So that little simple mini megatrend um, that our safety net hospital and our community have embraced, that to me is, is a harbinger of things that we can continue to do to pivot a little bit away from taking care of people just when they're sick, but trying to prevent. You know, we always hear about prevention. You and I have heard about prevention since we were pre-med students and uh, with varying levels of success. But even in terms of just plant-based diet, that could be that's huge. A preventive. No, no, that's, that's huge. huge. It is huge. I, you know, if you had asked you and I, would plant-based diets get any level of traction or embracing in 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 uh, certain communities uh, ten years ago? No. Now, it's it's people are saying, "Wow, that makes sense." 
um, you know, cut down on meat, uh, eat more plants and uh, uh, fruits and vegetables. My cholesterol goes down. My risk of cancer drops. Uh, I lose weight. I feel better. So again, that's one thing that we can do. And other things too is obviously safety net hospitals have to play a role in, in screening and preventive services. And one of the unfortunate aspects of COVID is we know that people have stayed away from hospitals in general. They passed on their mammograms. They passed on their blood pressure checks. They passed on their eye exam. They passed on their prostate examinations. So again, safety net hospitals in our community have really leaned in to getting people to come back for their preventive health maintenance. Or as I used to tell my patients, <laughs> their well baby visits, you know, in pediatrics, that's right. a well-established thing. You know, a uh, young child, toddler goes to the pediatrician at one month, three months, six months, and those are considered well baby visits because the baby's not having any problems. They're getting a few shots. They get checked. They check the growth chart. You know, I used to tease my adult patients, well, I want to see you in six months for your, your next well baby visit. But I was making a point that, look, look come back and see me. We're, you and I are going to be partners in, in, in getting your mammogram, getting your blood pressure checked, checking your cholesterol, et cetera. And, you know, when I'm, I'm just um, so excited to hear about this program that, you're, that your team is doing on the plant-based diet. I'll share a story. So our community-based program called Operation Change, um, there was one woman, and I, I was so taken by this, um, we would do in the program, 18-week program, three hours a week, mm -hmm. an hour of education, an hour of movement, an hour of motivational interviewing in small groups. So, so part of the program would typically include um, food preparation, mm -hmm. right? And it would be aligned around ethnically um, uh, related foods that they would be cooking at home. Correct. So one of the women who was Latina started to make a healthy dish for herself while well, she would still cook all the traditional food for her husband and children just like normal. Mm -hmm. And her husband would make fun of her cooking this healthier dish <laughs> just for her. Right. But she, to her credit and her bravery, she persisted. Then her children started eating what she was also cooking for her. Mm -hmm. Right. She still made the other food, but right. now there's also an additional option. Mm -hmm. Eventually, the husband started to eat it. And I thought, she is the pebble in the pond. This is the power of one mother, not just changing her health, but the health of her children, children. and her husband, which then changes the health of a community. The family, the community, and Except, the nation, And the ultimately. nation, then. Right. Correct. And whether that's a mother or a father mm -hmm. is not trying to be sexist right, here in my right. statement. I, the, the concept is that one person can be that pebble in the pond and that ripple effect will go out and that's how we make change. I agree. And, you know, it's, it, it goes back to the old starfish thing. You know, uh, you can't save every starfish, but if you save one, it makes a big difference. And so you're right. Don't underestimate uh, the power of individuals to to um, to create uh, health behavioral change. Wayne, it has been such a pleasure interviewing you for our Health Disparities podcast. I want to close with asking you what you think are the most important uh, call to action that people can embrace to help us move the needle on health equity. Well, I think the first thing, Mary, th first of all, thank you. Wonderful conversation. I'm honored to be with you. Um, don't be um, put off by the enormity 
of the health disparity issue, if you will. Um, this we can do. And I, I've always taken the approach that health disparities, you know, we'll never get them to zero. But if we, the medical professionals, the physicians, the healthcare leaders, the public health advocates, the community-based health advocates, each one of us in our various spheres of influence can lean into, first of all, acknowledging health disparities and acknowledge, then understanding them and then having, you know, the passion and the mission focus going back to the good sister to do our part in whatever sphere we are to address health disparities. Over time, we're going to get there. I firmly believe we're going to get there. So I take a positive, optimistic view of the challenges of health disparities. And think about the progress we've made already just in our medical career, uh, Mary. We've made tremendous progress in some issues in health disparities, but we, you and I both know more can be done. So take the long view, take the positive view. Well, I agree with that, and I like to um, pull that positive energy of the universe into this space and, and put those positive thoughts out there, while at the same time being realistic as to the challenges and the work that we have to do. But I do believe that, yes, we have made progress. We have a lot more uh, to do, and we're grateful that we have healthcare leaders like you, Dr. Wayne Riley, president of State University of New York Downstate here with us um, to help lead those changes. So on behalf of all of the Movement is Life family, thank you. Thank you, Mary.